This week on the show, we show you some ZFS optimization success stories, Linux namespaces are a poor man's online namespace, better support for SSH host certificates, a solution for checked-in private keys, a fast Unix commands, and how you delete stuff very quickly, fascination with ARC, and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 503, Fast Unix Commands, recorded on the 29th of March, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Uh, welcome. We have another episode with fresh content from the BSD world and uh, neighboring <laughs> countries. Uh, the first one is ZFS optimization success stories. Another article by Clara Systems. And who doesn't want to read success stories, right? The news are so filled with negative stuff. We might as well hear some good news. And this is... I don't know. ZFS failure stories are pretty funny, too. Yeah, yeah, like... that, yeah. Considering I, that I poured coffee on my pool, <laughs> it died. I couldn't recover. ZFS. Yeah, life. it's not a happy ending all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, success. Let's focus on good success, things. Success. Yeah. Success stories. Positive. Okay. As much as we think of resources like CPU and RAM as the main performance or components of a system, it is usually storage that is the bottleneck for most workloads. The team at Clara regularly undertakes performance audits and bug investigations related to storage. Today, we'll look back at a few examples of interesting performance issues we've investigated and resolved. Excellent. The system that spent a lot of time doing nothing, repeatedly. Okay, backups are critically important, but they tend to generate a lot of data, and sometimes that data doesn't change all that much. When backing up a system that is not capable of tracking which data has changed, ZFS has a very powerful feature, the mop write. ZFS stores a checksum, a hash, of the data as part of its metadata for each block on disk, which it uses to ensure the data is correct each time it's read back. When a block is to be overwritten in place, the NOPWRITE feature uses this hash to determine whether the new data is actually different from the old data. And if the data hasn't changed, the write operation for that block returns success without actually overwriting the old copy of that block because it's not needed. And here, uh, overwriting a VM image with a newer copy is one use case which can make excellent use of the NOPWRITE feature. Without NOPWRITE, overwriting a one terabyte VM image would require, well, one terabyte of files. But with NOPWRITE, the same operation will likely only actually write out a small fraction of the total data, since most of it presumably has not changed between versions. Okay, but in today's war story, the customer was seeing an odd issue. The number of writes uh, to disk was remaining low, as expected, but reads and CPUs, uh, CPU usage were quite high. Performance profiling revealed that the biggest consumer of CPU time was the checksum algorithm SHA-256. Hmm. When overwriting a file in place, NOPWRITE calculates the hash of the new block and compares it to the stored hash of the existing block. If the old hash matches the new one, then the write can be skipped. This customer was using SHA-256 hashes with a CPU, which did not support any SHA-NI acceleration, 
So Clara recommended switching to the SHA-512 checksum. Counterintuitively, though, SHA-512 hashes can be calculated around 50% faster than SHA-26 hashes on the 64-bit x86 CPU. Is that so? Let me make some changes once this show is over. Ahem. The change in hash algorithm provided a significant performance boost, but did not explain the amount of overhead or the reads from disk. Further analysis revealed the problem. The overwrites were misaligned. The incoming random access writes were 64 kilobyte blocks, but on disk the data was stored in 125 kilobyte blocks, the default value of the record size property. This requires ZFS to perform a read, modify, write cycle on each record. Huh, when the first 64 kilobytes uh, were written, ZFS would first need to read the old 125 kilobyte record and its checksum. Next, it would recalculate the checksum and compare the freshly calculated checksum to the one read from disk to verify correctness of the data. Then it would construct a new 125k block consisting of the new 64 kilobyte of data and the unmodified 60 byte, 64 kilobyte it read from the existing block on disk. Huh, quite, uh, yeah. Redundant. ZFS would then calculate the new checksum, determine it to be the same as the one found on the original block, and skip the write. Then a second 64 kilobyte write would arrive from NFS for the latter half of the same 128 kilobyte block on disk, forcing the entire read modify write cycle to happen twice on the same on disk block. Ooh. Adding insult to injury, this dataset was configured with the ZFS property primary cache equals metadata meaning ZFS would not cache the record it read. So ZFS also needed to read the entire original 128K from a disk a second time. To summarize, two times 128 kilobytes read from disk were not required. Calculation the, calculating the checksum of the same data four times and write nothing new to the disk. Hmm. Setting primary cache to all would at least cut the number of block uh, full block reads in half, but there was a much better fix Matching the NFS configuration to the ZFS record size property resolved the issue entirely. In this case, we configured NFS to use 128 kilobyte blocks, and with NFS block size and ZFS block size sized aligned, no read modify write cycle was necessary, and only a single metadata read checksum of the existing block needed to be performed. Oh, that's quite uh, hard to figure out, I would imagine. This saved two full block reads and three unnecessary checksum operations per 128 kilobyte blocks, significantly reducing CPU usage, disk utilization, and experienced latency, allowing ZFS to ingest incoming data as fast as the network could deliver it. Wow, okay. Then there is storage ghosts of the past. During another investigation, we found a storage pool where one particular VDEV was much slower than its peers. The system had 49 mirror sets of spinning disks, as one does, and a mirrored log device to a VDEV to accelerate synchronous writes. Okay. Our team observed that one particular mirror set would take much longer to make new allocations during heavy write operations, and this was bringing the performance of the entire pool down. Upon initial investigation, we noticed that the fragmentation level on that VDEF was much higher than the rest, so we tuned ZFS to avoid allocating attempts to overly fragmented meta-slaps. This quickly improved the write performance, and... Yeah, although performance improved, this raised an important question. Why did one VDEF have much higher levels of fragmentation than the others? Right? Probing the ZFS internal data structures, we found that this pair of disks had a much higher number of meta-slaps than the other identical mirrors. Researching the history of the pool in this particular VDEV revealed an all-too-common story. Many years earlier, the operator had made a mistake when attempting to add the mirror pair 
of SSDs to act as a log VDEF. They'd forgotten the use of the log keyword, accidentally adding the SSDs as a 49th data mirror instead. Aye. If this happened today, you'd use ZFS's device evacuation feature to remove the mistakenly added VDEF from the pool. But this mistake happened before that feature was developed. Without the ability to remove a VDEF, the operator's only option was to replace the SSDs with another pair of spinning disks in the existing VDEF. Then add another VDEF uh, for the slog using the SSDs. This worked and the systems compared uh, or appeared to function normally for years. And to understand why this led to massively increased fragmentation several years down the road, we need to talk briefly about how ZFS stores data on disk at a very low level. When the VDEF is created, ZFS carves it into roughly 200 individual data structures called metaslabs, which means the size of the metaslabs is determined by the size of the VDEF itself. When the problem VDEF in this story was created, the size of each of the metaslabs was only one gigabyte due to the relatively small size of the SSDs used to create it. Replacing the small SSDs with large spinning disks expanded the size of the VDEF, but it didn't change the size of the metaslabs themselves resulting in a VDEF which many thousands of metaslabs instead of only 200. Aye. When ZFS needed to allocate space from this VDEF, it would search through the first metaslab and found it did not contain enough contiguous free space. Then unload the metaslab, load another, and continue the process until it found enough free space. This is usually not that big of a problem, but since there were thousands of tiny metaslabs instead of a couple hundred larger ones, the process could take a long time. This in turn delayed allocations, held up the entire transaction group, and resulted in very poor performance. Okay, there's a bit more, but uh, the next story is about, dude, where's my data? With a picture of TNG's data, nice one. Um, one of the things that makes NFS such a scalable file system is the fact that everything is dynamically allocated. Metadata structures that most file systems pre-allocate statically, such as inodes, are replaced in ZFS with dynamically allocated structures that allow the file system to grow and scale to unimaginable sizes. However, this dynamic allocation does have a cost. Although fragmentation is a serious potential problem in any file system, the dynamic allocation of metadata in ZFS and the interconnected nature of its metadata, which we'll get into more detail about later, can increase both the seek distance and the number of metadata need reads necessary for a given operation. One of our current customers came to our team looking for advice on how to improve the performance of their large-scale backup system. The system is constantly ingesting backups from hundreds of different sources using often or tools which require heavy metadata operations. Many backup tools, such as Borg or rsync, attempt to optimize the incremental backup case by only copying the bytes or the bits of files that have changed. The tools begin by examining the, or the modified time, the modification time, file sizes and other parameters of the files on source and destination. If this metadata is different for the same file on source and target, the tool then inspects the contents of the file on each end in order to determine what blocks need to be updated on the target. This means that these non-file system aware backup tools must generate a lot of load when nothing has changed at all. All of those stat calls to check times and sizes are small block size random reads, one of the most difficult storage workloads. These random reads are especially slow on HDD-backed pools. Based on Clara's ZFS engineering team's recommendation, the customer augmented their pool with a mirror of three high-endurance SSDs allocated as the ZFS Special VDEF. This Special VDEF type is dedicated to storing metadata and hopefully small blocks that are inefficient to store on wide-rate Z VDEFs, such as those in this customer's pool. However, 
It's important to understand that the special is not a cache. It's the designated storage device for the pool's metadata. If the special is corrupt or fails, the entire pool will become unreadable. Since losing the pool's metadata means losing the pool itself, the special VDEF would always be a mirror and ideally at least three deep. The flash in the multiple VDEFs will wear evenly, so it is suggested to replace its members on a staggered cycle so they don't wear all out all at once. Some of the pools we have designed purposely use a mix of different SSD models or manufacturers or different sizes even to further reduce the likelihood that multiple devices in the mirror fail at the same time. As NFS will not migrate the metadata for existing files when a special is added to the pool, as files are modified and updated, the metadata will be written to the new dedicated devices. All our customers' metadata migrated to the special over time, the overall performance of the system improved. This was expected as the latency for a random read is an, for an SSD often measured in tens or hundreds of microseconds as opposed to the 4 to 30 milliseconds of a spinning disk. Oh, wow. There's more at the end, but I conclude. Uh, our team is committed to and has consistently helped customers across many industries investigate and improve the performance of their storage and resolve pathologies that were impacted by their end users. If your storage isn't as fast as you feel it should be, reach out to the Clara team for a storage performance audit. We'll get to the bottom of the issue and get the results of your system is capable of. Wow, that is certainly deep into the innards. Uh, but uh, if you know ZFS that detailed, then you have a way to uh, find these bottlenecks. Cool. Okay, next up we have a blog post from yatam.net and they write, Linux namespaces are just a poor man's plan nine namespaces. Plan 9 is the failed, there's a footnote, Plan 9 was a commercial failure, not a design failure, successor to Unix. It was developed by the same group, Bell Labs, with all of the experience they had gathered in the 20 years since Unix was first written. Many features that are common today in many Unix systems and some non-Unix systems originally came from Plan 9. For example, the PROC file system was implemented in Unix 8th edition, which was a predecessor to Plan 9. Another example, which I will talk about in this post, is the use of process namespaces. Plan 9 had two major ideas that everything else was built on. The first was the idea that everything is a file. You might think that in Unix, everything was already a file, but this is only partially true. In Plan 9, they took this idea to the extreme. Everything, including the input and output system, process management, and network connections are all accessed through the file system instead of usual syscalls. The second major design is, you guessed it, per process and namespaces. These two major ideas are key to what makes Plan 9 namespaces so great. Instead of having a different namespace API for each resource like we have in Linux, we had a unified concept of file system namespaces. It already means that the namespace API is a lot simpler than its Linux counterpart, but it also means that we have a namespace for almost anything. A popular example is the draw term terminal, which connects to a remote machine and binds the client display and input devices into the process namespace. That makes for an elegant remote desktop solution that doesn't require a custom protocol. The draw term program also shows another awesome property of Plan 9, which is a side effect of the two major ideas. Plan 9 was made after the concept of computer networks were more common, so it supports networking natively. Plan 9 has its own file system protocol called 9P, which is used to create the file system view of the process. You don't care if each resource is local or not, you access it the same way through the file system. A nice example of that is, is that if you want to create a proxy in Plan 9, you just need to mount remote slash net directory of the proxy server into the local net directory for the desired process. 
I'm not aware of a Docker counterpart in Plan 9, but I think it's obvious how one would implement such a thing easily. Some APIs are missing, like C groups, and the operating system is sadly stuck in the 90s, but I think Plan 9 can be a great inspiration and simplification. Sadly, we can't just bring Plan 9 namespaces into Linux or any other Unix-like OS. Only a system designed from the start properly with such coherence can achieve, achieve something so simple, yet powerful, and integrate with the whole system. Cool. Plan 9's cool. Yeah, yeah. We, we <laughs> always get interesting things from it how many plans do you have <laughs> nine <laughs> and probably more <laughs> all right um news roundup this week is about the thing that happened recently uh, about not sshing or committing your ssh private keys to a public repo uh we need better support for ssh host certificates this is about that incident and the article goes like the following. GitHub accidentally committed their SSH RSA private key. Ouch. Do a repository. And now a bunch of people's infrastructure is broken because it needs to be updated to trust the new key. This is obviously bad. But what's frustrating is that there's no inherent need for it to be. Almost all the technological components need to both reduce the initial risk and to make the transition seamless already exist. But first, let's talk about what actually happened there. You're probably used to the idea of TLS certificates from using browsers. Every website that supports TLS has an asymmetric pair of keys divided into a public key and a private key. When you contact the website, it gives you a certificate that contains the public key, and your browser then performs a series of cryptographic operations against it to A, verify that the remote site possesses the private key, which prevents someone just copying the certificate to another system and pretending to be the legitimate site, and B, generate an ephemeral and encryption key that's used to actually encrypt the traffic between your browser and the site. But what stops an attacker from simply giving you a fake certificate that contains the public key? Hmm. The certificate is itself signed by a certificate authority, CA, and your browser is configured to trust the pre-configured sets of CAs, right? SA, uh, CAs will not give uh, someone a signed certificate unless they prove they have legitimate ownership of the site in question, so in theory, an attacker will never be able to obtain a fake certificate from a legitimate site. This infrastructure is used for pretty much every protocol that can use TLS, including things like SMTP and IMAP. For SSH, doesn't use TLS and doesn't participate in any of this infrastructure. Instead, SSH tends to take a trust-on-first-use, or TOFU, model. The first time you SSH to a server, you receive a prompt asking you whether you want to trust its public key. Then you probably hit the Yes button and get on with your life. This works fine up until the point where the key changes and SSH suddenly starts complaining that there's a mismatch and something awful could be happening, like someone intercepting your traffic and directing it to their own server with their own keys. Users are then supposed to verify whether this change is legitimate, and if so, remove the old keys and add the new ones. This is tedious and risks users just saying, yeah, yeah, again. And if it happens too often, an attacker can simply redirect target users to their own server and through sheer fatigue at dealing with this crap, the user will probably trust the malicious server. So why not certificates? OpenSSH actually does support certificates, but not in the way you might expect. There's a custom format that's significantly less complicated than the XO509 certificate uh, used in the TLS ver uh, yeah, implementation. Basically, an SSH certificate just contains a public key, a list of host names it's good for, and a signature from a CA. There's no pre-existing set of trusted CAs, uh, so anyone could generate a certificate that claims it's valid for, say, github.com. 
This isn't really a problem though, because right now nothing pays attention to SSH host certificates unless there's some manual configuration. It's actually possible to glue the general PKI infrastructure into SSH certificates. Please don't do this, they have here. Okay, so let's look at what happened in the GitHub case. The first question is, how could the private key have been somewhere that could be committed to a repository in the first place? So uh, they have no unique insight into what happened at GitHub, so this is conjecture, but they're reasonably confident in it. GitHub deals with a large number of transactions per second. GitHub.com is not a single computer. It's a large number of machines. All of those need to have access to the same private key, because otherwise Git would complain that the private key has changed whenever it connected to a machine with a different private key. The alternate would be to use a different IP address for every front-end server, but that would instead force users to repeatedly accept additional keys every time they connect to a new IP. Okay, something needs to be reasonably or responsible for deploying that private key to new systems as they brought up, which means there's ample opportunity for it to accidentally end up in the wrong place. Yep. Okay, so what to do? Now, best practices suggest that this should be avoided by simply placing the private key in a hardware module that performs the cryptographic operations, ensuring that nobody can ever get at the private key. The problem faced there is that HSMs typically aren't going to be fast enough to handle the number of requests a second that GitHub deals with. This can be avoided by using something like a Nitro enclave, but you're still going to need a bunch of these in different geographic locales, because otherwise your front ends are still going to be limited by the need to talk to an enclave at the other side of the planet, and now you're still having to deal with distributing the private key to a bunch of systems. And what if we could have the best of both worlds, the performance of private keys that just happily live on the servers, and the security of private keys that live in HSMs? Unsurprisingly, we can. The SSH private key could be deployed to every front-end server, but every minute it could call out to an HSM-backed service and request a new SSH host certificate signed by a private key in the HSM. If clients are configured to trust the key that's signing the certificates, then it doesn't matter what the private key on the server is. The client will see that there's a valid certificate and will trust the key even if it changes. Restricting the validity of the certificate to a small window of time means that if a key or compromised, an attacker can't do much with it. The moment you become aware of that, you stop signing new certificates, and once all the existing ones expire, the old private key becomes useless. You roll out a new private key with new certificates signed by the same CA, and clients just carry on trusting it without any manual involvement. They uh, discuss a little bit more about this. Uh, so yeah, we leave that to you as a kind of a teaser what else uh, could be done. And uh, You probably need to be a bit of a crypto uh, person to kind of see what this is going to entail, but it's definitely well worth reading. All right, next up, we have a blog post from Alex Savu. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know how I've done on that. Uh, yeah. um, and they have fast Unix commands, the world's fastest ARM command, and one of the fastest CP commands. Fast Unix commands, F-U-C, don't pronounce that, is a project that aims to create the world's fastest Unix commands. Currently, this means RM and CP replacements named RMZ and CPZ, the Z stands for Zippy, uh, when better performance cannot be achieved, the next highest priority is efficiency. In practice, RMZ appears to be the fastest file deleter available, while CPZ wins in most cases, only losing in flat file directories. Myth busting. Many Stack Overflow answers will tell you to use this or less, that faster alternative to RM or CP. Let's look at the data. Rsync. Rsync for copying is always slower than CP, as far as I can tell. This should not come as a surprise as it performs data integrity checks. Interestingly enough, 
rsync deletes very large directories faster than rm, but is slower in all other cases. Find an rm or approximately equivalent in terms of performance. Shockingly, tar, collecting a directory into a tarball and extracting it into a new directory to copy is often faster than cp. Technical overview. Both tools are built using the same scheduling algorithm, following similar principles to FTZZ's scheduler. I do not know what that is. Um, the key insight is that file operations in separate directories don't, for the most part, interfere with each other, enabling parallel execution. Intuition here is that directories are a shared resource for their direct children and must therefore serialize concurrent directory modify operations causing contention. In brief, file creation or deletion cannot occur at the same time within one directory. Thus, the goal is to schedule one task per directory and execute each task in parallel. Doing this for copies is relatively easy. Iterate over every directory, spawn a new task when a directory is encountered, and copy files in place. File removal is far more interesting because you cannot remove a directory until all of its children, including subdirectories, have been fully removed. As a consequence, file removal tasks must wait until their children have completed before finally removing the current directory. Unfortunately, this approach is slow. Memory and time must be spent keeping track of child tasks, and children must somehow notify their parents of completion. Flipping the problem on its head reveals a beautiful solution. What if children were in charge of deleting their parents? No, thank you. Um, with a little bit of atomic reference counting, this solution is straightforward to implement and comes at almost no cost. While traversing directories, each spawned child directory task includes a parent smart pointer, implicitly creating a dynamic tree structure that models the directory hierarchy. These parent pointers are reference counted and trigger the directory deletion when fully freed. Additionally, each task decrements its reference count upon completion. That's it. Now, regardless of whether a parent directory finishes after all its children or vice versa, the last user of a directory will delete, delete its directory chain. And they include an appendix, a directory contention benchmark, which you can read at your leisure. Yeah, this is this is cool. So they say like find and RM are about the same speed, but both use the FTS part of the of libc. So they're basically using the same code to do directory traversal. So I'm not surprised they are about the same. It, an interesting thing to do would be to write uh, a FTS compatible part of libc which could handle concurrent operations like this. That would be really cool because then you could retrofit loads of tools to be a lot faster with a different libc. Is this possible? I have no idea, but that would be cool. Yeah, cool. I like it. I think the fastest way to delete files is with the ZFS data set. Yeah. I think you can just like roll back a snapshot, be done with it. It's the easiest way to get rid of user objects. <laughs> yeah, as you compile a lot of stuff, then you want to have a clean tree or objects directory. That's one way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, TempFS, fastest deletion. Same all changes yeah. onto a TempFS. It's all gone. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> Then we have the Fascination with Awk, another article that deals with our favorite uh, programming language, or some at least. Uh, Awk is a delightful mini-language almost unchanged for decades. The article starts, a bare minimum of features include strings, numbers, functions, associative arrays, line-by-line I.O., and shell invocation. Perhaps if it had fewer features, it would be impossible to program in it at all. There's an opinion that Awk is not suitable for writing serious programs. Even Brian Kernighan, the K in AWK, is convinced that this language is only good for small one-liners. However, this doesn't prevent enthusiasts from creating rather voluminous programs in Awk. A translate shell, all of these are linked from the article, a chip 8 emulator, a git graph generator, a bibliography manager, 
and simply at powerful command runner, the, the author's, uh, the block author's creation. The following experiments are also of interest. A Git implementation, org lisp, org prolog, and gron in org, the creation of the author again. There is a simple explanation for this. A minimum of features liberates creativity. When there is only one way to do something, you don't spend a lot of time choosing what, uh, which way to do or that very way. You concentrate on implementing a pure idea. There is no temptation to add often unnecessary abstractions simply because it's simply because with such restrictions it is almost impossible to implement them. In addition, there is a sporting interest. Is it really possible to write something functional even in such a language? Surprisingly, you can actually get very far with awk most of the time. Many who tried said they were surprised how well the awk prototype worked. So there was not even much point in rewriting it uh, into some more traditional programming language. I don't think this is an exception, but rather a consistent pattern due to the true genius of the awk authors. There's another link. I wrote a compiler in awk. Oh dear. Uh, in principle, they're inclined to share this opinion. They're even ready to go as far as to say that uh, what can be scripted with awk should be scripted with awk over Python, Ruby, Node.js, etc. They're not saying that you should write large applications, but for medium scripts, awk is an absolute fine alternative to mainstream scripting languages with many benefits. A good programmer chooses the most powerful tool for the job. The best programmer chooses the least powerful tool to do the job. There we go. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, I try to motivate my students every semester to write uh, or look at awk, and that's the main thing they don't want to learn. But yeah, they don't know what they're missing. Personally, I found that Arc is also a surprisingly good replacement for larger than average shell scripts. Uh, they list a couple of why points. I just give the highlights. Portability, very clean C-like syntax, powerful associative, array, uh, associative arrays, powerful string functions. The language is very minimalistic and non-redundant. Easy interoperability with the shell. While the Arc core is very small, the full power of the standard Unix utilities is at your disposal. And the language is very stable. There is the canonical book on Arc, published back in 1988. A masterpiece, they say. You can be sure that you know the whole language. It, can unlikely, it is unlikely that anyone would dare to say the same even about the POSIX shell. Okay. Yeah, there's a section about uh, Y shell and Arc, but uh, we leave that to you. Then you have a bit more from this article. So I guess we kind of... Uh, Gave you a little appetite to learn Arc once and for all and finally uh, use it. Okay, next when you're biting things off, you might want to take small bites. And with those, you can take beastie bits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the first thing we have is a reply to a tweet. And the original tweet is OpenSense 23.1 released. And the reply was development environment updated and working. And then clicking through to the link, there's a Git repo with a Vagrant script, bootstrap an open sense development environment in Vagrant. Um, and it shows how to set up with Vagrant and VirtualBox, how to set up an open sense development environment with this Vagrant files here. And um, you use Vagrant up, Vagrant, Vagrant up, and then connect to browser and you have open sense, which is really cool. And it's from um, Patrick M. Housen. Oh, yeah. He's a EuroBSDCon regular and uh, yeah, yeah, keeping the BSD flag up in his part of the world. <laughs> Greetings to Karlsruhe. Um, next thing is 
uh, oh yeah, a work in progress feature at basic FreeBSD support on Kubelet or Kubelet? Kubelet, yeah. Uh, what kind of PR is this, they say? Uh, well, this is basically starting the first bricks to make Kubelet start on FreeBSD and talk with CRI runtime. In their case, ContainerD and RunJ to run, for now, FreeBSD containers. Oh yeah, they list a couple of limitations, so don't get too excited yet. They don't find a way yet uh, from Kubelet to run platform equals Linux containers, whereas talking directly to container D, permit to run any Linux container on FreeBSD. Okay, so it's one way. Only host network equals true containers are supported for now, as there is no CRI on FreeBSD with network namespacing for now, as they tested. And it didn't test yet pods scheduled from Kubernetes control plane, just static pods, uh, but it should not be an issue. Okay. They have a logging startup from the kubelet. Uh, yeah, and that's a bit of discussion going on about the PR itself, how to integrate that and what kind of things are needed or missing. And seems like it's, uh, did it get merged? Let's scroll down. Uh, what does this say? Needs rebase. Uh, well, PR needs rebase. Details. Um, let's say it's in a good way um, to getting integrated. I think it's not completely uh, disregarded or ignored or fought against. So I think this has happened sooner or later. Cool. All right, and then last up this week, we have fortunes.cat-v.org, and it is a collection of fortune files from different operating systems. Here you can find the fortune files from various operating systems. The Plan 9 fortunes include the contents of Bell Labs and Research Unix fortune files. There seems to be some overlap between FreeBSD and NetBSD fortune files. Contact me if you have more fortune files. To do, standardize the format and finally pick a web interface. So if you fancy some fortune files, go and look here and you'll find some fortune files. Fortunes.cavi.org. Oh yeah, interesting. The ones from FreeBSD are there, kernel newbies. And oh yeah, that, that's good. Well, interesting to see what other systems give you in the fortune space or how fortunate. Yeah, I don't know, some of these things are pretty offensive. Yeah, we, we had removed a couple of them because uh, they were really offensive, not just for the people who find everything offensive these days, but no, like actual. Oh, there's a sub column. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, don't go there. No, no, but like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, have fun. <laughs> um, don't deploy these in public. Yeah, or you lose a lot of fortune, maybe. Um, <laughs> our good fortune is that you have now reached the end of this episode, and of course, you have to wait another week for a new one. Uh, but definitely check out the articles we covered and maybe some of the tools might interesting to you. Some of them are looking for help, support, and testing. So what better things to do than get that? Well, I guess you can think of a couple of things, but well, if you want to support the BSDs in one way or the other, it's a good start. Anything else from our side? Any announcements that we haven't covered? Oh, the EuroBSDCon uh, call for papers is out. So check out EuroBSDCon's website. That runs oh, come, until May. Yeah, come and, come, and, come and see us at BSDCon. We're going to do a live that show. That too, yes. It's not too far out. Uh, and yeah, I look forward to it. We have hopefully a little audience and we will be able to give you a live show, which has never been done before with all. Yeah, and it has, it's, and it's not been written yet. So who knows what it will contain. <laughs> yeah, it's, it will be fresh out of the oven. And with all three of our hosts, is yeah, that's the plan at least. And I think we're going to make this happen. So 
another good reason to attend the conference in Ottawa in May. And of course, for those who can't attend it, there will be a recording. Well, because well, we don't know that, so just come. <laughs> yeah. Of course, nothing like, beats I, I, the I don't live know if there'll experience. Be a recording. <laughs> this, this, it's going to depend on Air Canada if there's a recording. So you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of risk. Yeah, here. of course. If you want to see the live show, come and see the live Am show. I flying Air Canada. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah. <laughs> see <laughs> like, who knows what's gonna what, happen how, how hard could it be you know they they did good job in the, in the past so i was at bsd can at least 10 times now if I, I've, I've never flown with air canada so i don't know what's gonna happen you're good i fly, you, you fly, arrive fly, fly, lose piece. your bag yeah. i mean the microphone can arrive in one piece two weeks late yeah but yeah we're see. not that unlucky and we are at a conference where our microphones are not i am this unlucky i don't know the... about you <laughs> <laughs> They, they, everything will be fine as usual said the dog in the burning house um, yeah we leave you for now and uh, we'll be back next week with another one